Why do you think it didn't happen? If you played the Mr. Ed theme song backwards, it said Satan is the source. If you played the Mr. Ed theme song backwards, it said Satan is the source. It said Satan is the source. It said Satan is the source. Either we're going to create simulations that are indistinguishable from reality or civilization will cease to exist. I was flying on UA-93 That shadow in the footage, it was probably me I'm the rumor, I'm the doubt, I'm the lie But you wouldn't stand near me if you didn't want to die Everything you know is wrong There's a verse missing out of this song Nevertheless, it's estimated that more than 18 million Americans still have their doubts about the official history of U.S. space travel. Well, greetings, dysfunctionals. I am Ernesto Morales. And I'm Alex Janish. And today we bring you the epic conclusion of Norberto Bobbio's theory thriller, Left Right, The Significance of a Political Distinction. Last time, with the help of a yawning dog, we followed Bobbio as he established equality as the governing principle of the left showing how the use of non-opposing words weaken the distinction between left and right. The two ends of the political spectrum are simplified to egalitarian and inegalitarian. What is the purpose of replacing clear criteria like equality, inequality, with less convincing ones, Bobbio asks. Today we discuss chapters 7 and 8, respectively titled Freedom and Authoritarianism and the Pole Star. In this final discussion, we will deal with the idea of freedom, how it does and does not work with the notion of equality, and how the center represents the abdication of political responsibility. This chapter starts off freedom and authoritarianism, and uh, his basis for his argument is that often equality is coupled with freedom and considered supreme and ultimate. And Bobbio is saying that's not necessarily the case. Libertarianism and equality are in no way mutually exclusive. Let's read that first paragraph. I think that... Uh, really a good place to start. Equality as the highest or even ultimate ideal of an ordered, just, and happy community, and therefore both an enduring social ideal and a reoccurring theme in political theories and ideologies, is often coupled with the ideal of freedom, which is also considered to be supreme and ultimate. I mean, we definitely see that in our society, that equality and freedom are put forward as these two ultimate ideas or the two ultimate goals that we try to strive for. Uh, it's totally something inherent in the uh, rhetoric of our times. And I think it's interesting, like he did with equality and hierarchy and really using a specific Bobbio, like how he investigated equality and hierarchy investigates what is freedom and liberty really mean. He uses the example of liberté, égalité and fraternité, um, as a, a slogan that's commonly used in France, but he asks, where is this freedom between whom, in what, and on what basis? And he says it is purely emotive. Like all of these things are just kind of lip service that people are playing towards these things. I mean, you see it on the left and the right. Both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump will be saying things like freedom and equality with things, but they're really, they're vague, as he says about so many other things. Everyone must be free. Like when we hear that, it, emo it evokes an emotional response. But the really... Freedom isn't free. Freedom isn't free, no. <laughs> freedom isn't free. 
But what Bobio asks, he, what he says is that when you hear someone say everyone must be free, that the very first question that you have to ask is everyone, truly everyone. And then he goes on to give the Aristotelian uh, sort of defense to that, talking about infants, the insane, or slaves by nature. Um, of course, we've maybe come to a point in our own society where we don't necessarily believe um, that people are slaves by nature, but certainly the idea of infants, right? I mean, do how do little babies have the same capacity to make choices that uh, adults do? Um, and for those of you who have children, you know that they do not have that capacity. Um, and so to think about that, I mean, what that really means is that we have to establish uh, what is meant by freedom, right? And, you know, thinking about freedom, freedom of, what is meant by freedom? What kind of freedom we're talking about? What kind of freedom we're talking about? I mean, negative freedom, meaning that we have uh, freedom to not be told what to do. Is that the kind of freedom we're talking about? Or do we have the freedom to actually go out and not be attacked or um, be able to speak our minds in public? And after he kind of develops this this first question about where do we start, what does freedom mean, he goes into um, the two big ideologies of our time, socialism and liberalism, and says neither of the two great ideals can be taken to his ultimate conclusion without implementation of one restricting the other. The clearest example is the contrast between the ideal of liberty and order. So when he talks about socialism, socialism and liberalism as the two great ideals can be taken to their ultimate conclusions without implementation of one restricting the other, he's talking about at its base, communism and socialism are trying to create mass equality. The basis of it is that everyone is equal. And liberalism is the basis that everyone should have freedom to choose in the free will kind of way. And those things are in contrast of each other. Well, it's the freedom, that they have freedom based in their individuality, right? So that's the, as he talks about throughout the rest of the book, the egalitarian, um, the egalitarians think about it in terms of people all being the same, that they have these basic needs and these basic wants and desires, and that all people have a right to those. Whereas with the idea of uh, freedom, which is, very much a, a part of the way that we think about things uh, in what he calls liberalism. He talks about that we uh, see a society, and I believe that he's talking about the United States when he writes this, which exalts all freedoms, economic freedoms above all, without worrying or worrying only slightly about the inequalities which arise from it in this part of the world and even more visibly in distant parts. And so it's Again, setting up that uh, that opposition that he continues to talk about in the last two chapters of this book, and he uses communism as kind of the end, the material example of the end of socialism is what we're getting at, and he uses capitalism as kind of the um, the far-reaching part of liberalism, and he says that communism, while it flattens everything, becomes totalitarian in its nature. But he also says that capitalism, it cannot hold equality within it because 
the pure freedom of the market is needed. He does say that, and I think he actually makes it really clear. These two things, uh, without each other's influence, become that totalitarian regime, or they become that totalitarian society. The idea that we can have extreme equality leads to what some of the examples that he was putting forward here. If you live in a society where everybody has to wear the same clothes, or everybody has to take public transportation. That's the kind of flattening that he's talking about. But on the same hand, or on the other hand, not on the same hand, when you live in a society where everybody has a choice. I think what I'm hearing you get at is when we talk about public, the example of public, everyone must use public transportation in this way. It is flattening of the uh, equality throughout our society, but in turn, it takes away people's individual choice of how they want to commute to work, right? And the same can be said about schools. Um, he uses an example of Italy where they made public schools. They said it was something so that everyone had the ability to go to school and get a good education, but he was a lot of people complained that they had the ability to send their kids to a specific school taken away from them. So they did not have that personal freedom. And I think it's really interesting when he talks about these things. He, he says specifically, every extension of the public sphere for egalitarian purposes restricts freedom of choice in the private sphere. But then he says, which is intrinsically inegalitarian because the private freedom of the rich is, is immeasurably greater than that of the poor. Loss of freedom naturally affects the rich more than the poor. And I think that I think that that shows in the way that people vote about these things. The rich are generally more conservative economically and are also talking about freedoms in a lot more ways. But people who are generally considered more poor are looking more to have the ability to enjoy those freedoms. To enjoy those freedoms. Right. right. Oh, that's really what it boils down to. Because if we're going to be honest, as Bobio writes, and I have to totally agree with this, the rich lose a freedom which they actually enjoy, whereas the poor lose only a potential freedom. And I mean, that's something that we can certainly see. And it's one of the really interesting things that's happening even in this country right now is that people seem to cling to the idea that they could be rich. And because they could be rich, they don't want to curtail the freedom of the rich. Because it would mean that somehow that would keep them from attaining that one day. Well, because right now they're temporarily disenfranchised millionaires, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. They'll be a millionaire tomorrow. Yeah. So. yeah. Everyone in this room right now they is want temporarily the, disenfranchised millionaire. Yeah. Right. But tomorrow when I have my millions of dollars, I'm going to fly my jet around and... Uh, burn diesel fuel all over the planet. Right? And, and that's the that's that's the kind of freedom that that they're talking about. I think that's actually the kind of freedom that um is really being sort of investigated in this chapter and throughout. And you can see why Bobbio is saying that equality and freedom can't really work together. To be equal, I mean if, if we were all going to be equal in terms of riches then everybody would have that opportunity, right? I think something that we could look at in current society here in the United States is the Green New Deal. I just 
I, I love seeing Paul Gosar's emails. Um, I'm going to take that back. I don't love seeing Paul Gosar's emails, but I think uh, it is really interesting to see the way that people like him and people from the Western Caucus are talking about why we shouldn't have the Green New Deal. They're talking about it as this authoritarian measure that no one's going to be able to eat hamburgers anymore. No one's going to be able to fly their planes around anymore. No one's going to be able to commute to work. But really, taking what Bobbio said right there, it's actually not going to hurt many people and not change the way people consume hamburgers in a lot of ways or change the way people travel. It's going to really affect the people who are on an airplane every day or the people that eat three ribeyes a day. And that, that's really what's going to change with the Green New Deal. So he goes on and uh, says the fundamental principle of the form of minimal fundamental principle of the form of minimal egalitarianism expressed by liberal doctrine, whereby all human beings have equal right to equal liberty, with some justified exceptions, implies that everyone must restrict their own liberty in order to make it compatible with the liberty of others and to allow others to enjoy the same liberty. That's where we see a lot of the argument right there is that rich people are angry that their rights are being taken away. But really what's happening is we're leveling the way that people can address their liberty and enjoy the same liberty with these things when we're making egalitarian measures for our society. So when everyone must restrict their own liberty in order to make it compatible with the liberty of others and to allow others to enjoy the same liberty, this idea is coming from the Leviathan, Hobbes, talking about nature and that our humanistic essential nature is that we're just going to murder, death, kill everyone around, steal everyone's land um, and all these things. And we're in total chaos. The, the, the point of having the state and the, the person who is the one who looks over everything is uh, to create this order. Right, like that's what the Leviathan is all about. That's why the divine nature of kings. But now we're into a point of democracy, and we have the state, and it's organized in a different way. But we have the state. We have the state in order to prevent us from just delving into total chaos, where we take everyone's liberties away, and there is no uh, equality in any sort of way. Well, the, the state regulates that right. that natural inclination towards that that permanent state of war that you're talking about. Between individuals, right, for their survival. Yes. Yeah. And I might even say that we're still in a permanent state of war, just a different battlefield, but <laughs> what does equal liberty mean, Morales? Uh, I, I think, you know, I found this part really actually kind of interesting because he talks about the fact that it's vague and ambiguous, which is something that we've been confronted with throughout this whole book, is like the vagueness of some of these ideas, right? It's vague, he says, because there is no liberty in general, but only individual liberties, such as freedom of, of thought, of the press, of economic activity, of meaning and association. And in each case, you have to specify which one you are referring to. Interesting point, really, because I think that lots of times when people talk about their liberty or their rights, that they think that liberty is something that exists, right? Like the air exists or the water exists. Simple. What's that? Simple. Sample? Simple. Oh, simple. Oh, yeah. Simple. Yes. But what Bobbio is saying, and I would agree with him, is that there is no such thing as, as liberty that 
even the idea of like the Bill of Rights, right? These are rights that are theoretically guaranteed to American citizens that have been put into writing so that they have a protection against the government. So against this this regulation, right? This liberal regulation that uh, Bobbio is talking about. And so, you know, when we possess the same freedoms as everyone else, I mean, we're really doing that in a very abstract sense. So we're, you were talking about earlier, and as we read, particularly in terms of if someone is rich and if someone is poor. I mean, theoretically, poor people and rich people have the same freedoms, but the reality is they're not enjoyed or implemented in the same way, and, and they never will be. So to think about, you know, what that means, right, that liberal practice cannot ensure any of these freedoms unless it intervenes with restrictive egalitarian measures and therefore alters the general principle. These ideas, they, they can't really exist without each other. The idea um, that you can be totally free is, well, it's absurd, right? It's wildly unreasonable. We can't all be totally free. We can't all do whatever it is that we want to do. But at the same time, the idea that we can all be exactly the same is also absurd and does not seem to have any sort of like basis in the real world. Like there is no place where everybody is the same. Yeah, I think it's really kind of interesting how both of these concepts, even though they're greatly reviled by the people who represent the opposite sides of them, really work to make it possible for those things to happen, right? The restrictive measures, the restrictive egalitarian measures that are put in place through liberal practices actually make it possible to have wide-scale freedom. That's kind of crazy because people get, you know, they get all twisted up about it, right? Like, oh, you, you know, everybody has rights and, and this and that. And it's just like, well, yeah, everybody does have rights and everybody has freedom. And the reason you have freedom is because people have rights. It's way more complicated of a situation, I think, than most people have ever really given it any thought. I think when we were talking, you were talking about liberty being kind of an abstract. You were saying that liberty doesn't exist on its own. Is that correct? Well, Bobbio said that. Yeah, but I agree with him. Okay. Liberty, liberty, general liberty doesn't exist. And I think people kind of, the end of their thought about what liberty is, is, uh, is the Pledge of Allegiance, liberty and justice for all. Like, we just have liberty. We just have justice. Yeah, what, what, what does that really mean? What do those liberties really mean? I mean, remembering when, you know, when the book was written, I mean, the book is written in the, in the 90s, right after or shortly after the, the fall of the, of the Soviet Union. I think that there was a lot of questioning that was going on right then, particularly, you know, in terms of which one of these projects had really uh, won or had, you know, taken won the field or, or whatever. 
which was the right one to move forward with. Yeah, well, or yeah, which one was the right one to move forward with? I mean, socialism, liberalism. To me, anyways, it's it's somewhat clear that what Bobbio is arguing is that these two things can't really disappear from each other. They're not necessarily, as he points out, symmetrical. He actually says this a little bit further down from where we're talking about right now, where he says the two concepts of liberty and equality are not symmetrical. Whereas liberty is a personal condition, equality is a relationship between two or more entities, which actually I thought was, one, profoundly simple, two, something that I just don't think that that really occurs to people, that in order for there to be equality, there has to be more than one, right? You can't be equal to yourself. <laughs> but liberty is is this sort of individual thing that he's um, that he's putting forward. He goes on to say that this explains why freedom can be considered a personal good, unlike equality, which can only be a social good. And and again, I mean, it it comes back down to as he's talked about throughout all the rest of the book. How is it that we want society to be ordered? What are the criterion that we need to establish in order to in order to understand you know, how we want society to be ordered? So Bobbio says that an egalitarian measure does not always restrict freedom. He uses the example of voting rights. At a certain time, women were not able to vote and men were. And when women were able to vote, it did not actually take men's rights away from them in any way. The only thing it did was address the power of their rights. Yes. And I think that that is an important thing, but it gets conflated in a different way when we talk about gets conflated in a different way when the right specifically talks about their points. If we're going to give, if we're going to open our borders or allow immigration into these things, they're always talking about how it's going to harm us or take away our jobs or things like that. But giving people rights actually does not affect the rights of other people. And I think that's a super important part or point. As Ernesto was just saying earlier, the ending, the conclusion of this chapter of Bobbio, Freedom and Authoritarianism, he goes into saying that we need these things, that the next logical conclusion for full equality leads to a totalitarian regime, as well as full liberty will lead to an authoritarian regime in these things. And, you know, we can see the case of Stalinist Russia or um, full free market society that... Per, per, that perpetuates the genocide of indigenous people in the Americas. Right. I mean, that's, if that's not chaotic freedom, then I don't know what that could be called. Right. And so when he shows, uh, as he moves into the last chapter, pole star, what uh, Bobbio immediately begins to talk about is uh, what he considers or what he thinks. And again, I, agree with him that it is the um, right of private property that the left has always seen as the great uh, inequalizer that as Rousseau talked about the first man who fenced in his land and cried this is mine that has become the basis of the inequalities the basis of wealth 
for people who are rich in this world. And as I just was saying a second ago, it's certainly uh, the basis of the genocide against indigenous people in the Americas. There's a really good book called Settlers by a guy named Jay Sakai. And Sakai really lays out the history of the land grab that happened here in the United States specifically. And he talks about how English settlers coming over, you know, mostly as indentured servants, they could expect to be in that capacity for five or six years. But that after that, they had every opportunity to, um, to become landowners and to become rich. But the land that they were taking was already inhabited by indigenous people. And it goes on to talk about the, the removal, the, the murder, the assassinations of indigenous people throughout the history of the United States. I mean, up until a certain point when the killing was over because there wasn't really anybody left to kill. Um, but it's this idea of private property, right? I mean, that's, that's what those people were fighting for. That's what they were murdering people for. They were murdering people so that they could put a fence around it and say, this is mine. And we look at the United States today, it is one of the main countries that has uh, extreme divides between the rich and the poor. I think Brazil is like the other one, the United States and Brazil. Well, we have you know most of the world's billionaires here in the United States, while we may not have the number one or two richest people in the world every year when the Forbes thing comes out, right. we have most of the billionaires in the world. Yeah. That also comes from, you know, the first trillion dollar company, Amazon being here, you know, Microsoft, all these huge companies that are taking resources out of many other countries, but concentrating the wealth here in the United States. Yeah. Bovio says for the left, the struggle for the abolition of private property and for collectivization has also been a struggle for equality and the removal of the main obstacle to the creation of the society of equals. And it's just like you were saying, I mean, if you have in this country, there are 20, 26 billionaires who have as much money as half of the world's population. That is an incredible inequality, but it's also, and I fail to see why most people don't, the people who don't see this can't see it, is also an incredible attack on freedom. I mean, there's no way that we can be as free as those 26 billionaires. It's, it's just, it's not possible. But I'm going to be that billionaire next week. <laughs> <laughs> we trade I, it around, right? Well, you know, I think what's really interesting... White people just share it around, right? <laughs> well, yeah, they definitely share it around. But what's also really interesting... I think, you know, people are like, oh, Donald Trump, and I hate Donald Trump and all this. But, you know, what we've really gotten to see over the past two years is a real glimpse behind the curtain as to how these, just how free these billionaires really are, right? I mean, they, uh, well, like Donald Trump pays porn stars to have sex with him and then, and then pays them exorbitant amounts of money to not say anything about it doesn't release his taxes, has shady business dealings all over the world. I mean, what doesn't Donald Trump get to do? Donald Trump is, is he even a billionaire? Does I mean, it really matter? I mean, I <laughs> guess it doesn't really, he's the president now, so I guess it doesn't really matter. But before that, he had a television show in his name all over the world. I mean, this is, 
This is a type of freedom that will only be enjoyed by a small group of people. There's no way around that. But we've gotten a glimpse sort of behind the curtain and we see or we can begin to see, you know, how how the other half, I guess, I mean, that's really being generous, right, uh, live. And what we realize is that, of course, they don't want equality. Of course, Donald Trump says socialism, like you said in the episode before this, when he was talking about socialism, that socialism will never succeed here in the United States. I mean, of course, he, he says that. Of course, Mitch McConnell says that. Paul Ryan says that. All of these people are benefiting from the massive inequality that exists because of this rabid clinging to this idea of, of freedom. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. So when we think about, you know, the left, the abolition of private property, collectivization, yes, those things are how we would create a society of equals. It would be the only way to do it. But really, whose property are we taking? I mean, we're taking the property of these 26 billionaires. That's who we're taking. We're taking Jeff Bezos' property. But yeah, they've been uh, taking the fruits of working people's labor for a long time. It's like the Utah Phillips song, we fed you all for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. I mean, so to, to, think about, to think about it in that way, I mean, does it necessarily mean that my house, that my house isn't my house anymore? No, I don't think that's what we're talking about, you know, or that anybody can just, you know, take my car and go driving down the road. It's also not what we're talking about. Well, yeah, I mean, Bobio is really pointing out that it's not the extremes. It's not we either have private property or we don't, or even the conversation about private versus public property of these things. But something that the left could be for and would totally change the game is, you know, limit the amount of houses that people have, you know, your one house. That's totally fine. Everyone can have a house in the United States. I heard that there's four times as many houses in this country that no one lives in that are owned by banks than there are people who are houseless in the United States. That's disgusting. And you can't even imagine, I mean, John McCain running for president back in, was it 2012? Yeah. I don't know. Whenever he ran against President Obama, they they asked him a question, how many houses does he have? And he stumbled on the answer and said that he didn't know. That is a fucking problem, right? When you have five, six, 27 houses, I mean, that's that's real inequality for sure. But these people are, are conflating that with freedom, that they have the liberty to have as many houses as they want. But someone like you or I don't have the ability and the freedom to actually go out and get these houses in the same way that they do. We don't have the access to that. It's a theoretical freedom. That's what Mobile says. That's what for you were us, saying. Yeah. For us. That's what you were saying earlier. But not it's, for them. Yeah. Not for them. No, it's a real freedom for them. It's a theoretical freedom for us. And I think that, you know, the way that Bobio is ending this book is is really powerful. Because, you know, and he also says here at the end of the book that he considers himself a man of the left. And if that weren't already apparent to the readers of this book, I think it's important that he comes out at the end and says that. Because what he's also saying is, I'm trying very hard not to engage in value-loaded statements, but I am a man of the left, and this is what I see. The cause of equality is one that benefits everyone. The cause of freedom is one that benefits 
individuals mostly. It can also benefit everyone too. But it's entirely possible. I think that we could have too much freedom and that we could have too much equality. Figuring out... Fascist. <laughs> Statement or question? <laughs> Peanut gallery. Right. <laughs> Figuring out the, the balance, right, between those two things, right? Bobbio says, besides, if equality can be interpreted negatively as leveling out, Inequality can be interpreted positively as the recognition of the irreducible individuality of every person. They both have things about them that can be positive. He also says this is why the great ideas can withstand time and changing circumstances and cannot be reconciled in spite of the good offices of conciliatory reason. These ideas are irreconcilable but not absolute. Fascinating. Uh, because it's also one of those moments of, you know, ambiguity, right? Like, these two things can't be reconciled, but at the same time, they're not absolute. Lots of times I think people reject the idea that something can't be absolute or that it can't just mean this one thing, but that's really the, the crux of their irreconcilability, right? Is that that contradiction the constantly changing uh, nature of the left and the right. So I think what you're getting at is in the United States as the place that I can speak to, people conflate it as either this or that. It's either right or left. And I think that that's the way that not necessarily our language works, but the way that we talk about these things. And it's always more complicated than that, that there is kind of a gray area that's infinite in between these two things. Bovio finishes up the eighth chapter by talking about uh, one of his teachers who I'm going to respect enough not to try to say his name, uh, but the title of the essay, or not the essay, the title of the lecture specifically that Bovio is referencing is the elementary lecture on the similarities and dissimilarities between liberalism and socialism. And Bobbio talks about how this professor, who he has great admiration for, uh, this is like one of his last lectures that he gave, and how this lecture has been a sort of a guiding star for Bobbio throughout his career, that he wrote, both currents are respectable, talking about liberalism and socialism, the liberal and the socialist, Although adversaries are not enemies, because both respect the other's opinion and know that there is a limit to the implementation of their own principle, he concluded that the optimum is not achieved through the enforced peace of totalitarian tyranny. It is reached through the continual struggle between the two ideas, and the suppression of either would be to the detriment of all. I think that is the moment that we face in this country right now. That is the question, whether or not it's the one that's being articulated openly. It is the question, do we have an enforced peace? How is it that we can continue to allow these ideas, the ideas of liberalism and the ideas of socialism to work through our society 
to create greater equality because that's really what the goal is. It's to create greater equality. As Bobbio points out, there are three principal sources of discrimination, class, race, and sex, and they have never been challenged as they are in our own times. This challenge isn't going to go away. It will continue to define the left and the right. It will continue to make us re-examine our notions of freedom and equality and inequality. But people are not going to people are not going to go back to the way that that things were. I mean, women are not going to not vote. Uh, indigenous people are not going to give up the gains that they have made in our society. Black folks will not be regulated to second-class citizens. Chicanos are not going to go back to being farm workers. It's not going to happen. And so as that challenge, you know, begins to grow, it kind of reminds me of that quote from Zizek that uh, resentment is the refusal to normalize oppression. It fits into what uh, Bobbio is, is talking about here, that when we think about why people are angry or why they get so angry is because the the oppression has been identified. We have a choice to make at that point, right? Do we normalize it? Do we say, oh, you know, it's okay or, you know, that's the way things are or do we refuse to do that and as a result, move that struggle forward? So again, going back to the liberal and the socialists as uh, the two things that are required, uh, it's, you know, in conversation with each other and it's moving left and right and we're moving forward with these things. I thought a really interesting piece in the New York Times from June of 2018 talking about David Adler's study called The Centrist Paradox. If you're looking for the New York Times article, it's um, if you type in authoritarian centrist in the New York Times it's very easy to find. Otherwise, The Centrist Paradox, Political Correlations of the Democratic Disconnect by David Adler. Um, specifically, though, that he went through the World Values Survey and European Values Survey to examine the relationship between democratic disconnect and the left-right political spectrum. And what he found out is that people that specifically identified themselves as moderates so not that David Adler qualitatively examined people as moderates through any sort of definitions or anything, but people who self-identified as moderates were more likely in huge numbers to be against democracy and things like liberal institutions, which is fascinating, right? Figure four of his study looking at support of democratic institutions, specifically Civil rights as essential. So if people thought civil rights were essential here in the United States, on the far left, almost 70% of people said that it is essential to the United States. On the far right, 40% of people said civil rights are essential in the United States. But the lowest of those numbers was not actually the far right, like I would have thought, but is the center. People who identify themselves as the center of the political spectrum of the left and the right. And they're below 30%, around 25%. And I think that's fascinating. And then another one is a support for strong leader who ignores parliaments or congresses. And this is world, European and the United States. On the far left, about 15% of people support strong leaders who would ignore Congress. And on the far right, about 30% of people 
would support a strong leader who ignores Congress. But what's even more fascinating is people who consider themselves as moderate is the center right in the middle, not a Democrat or a Republican or whatever other things are in Europe. 40% of people said that a strong leader should ignore parliament and Congress. Wow. 40%. And I think this is getting back to what Bobbio is talking about. When they're, when people are identifying that there is not a necessity for the left as egalitarian or the right as um, an egalitarian or this authoritarian spectrum that we're liberty spectrum that we were talking about prior to this it's flattening of all of these contradictions it is actually supportive of authoritarianism as opposed to democracy thinking about this study and what it means towards authoritarianism why are people who consider themselves middle and not a democrat or a republican necessarily or not all not always voting with the party lines why would they be embracing authoritarianism and some of the things I was thinking of and I heard were a disavowal of politics, specifically in this moment of hyper-politicization. David Adler is saying that in an interview, not in this study, that Donald Trump won not because of the far right, but because of the moderates, people who consider themselves moderates because they're looking for a strong leader. They're tired of democracy. He won on a platform of uh, draining the swamp. Right. All these things are nonsense. People are so disenfranchised by politics and the way that it's carried out in these days that people are sick of it. It's a real abdication of their own responsibility with these things. And they just want someone to do these things. We were talking about Radio Lab on um, talking about a Radio Lab that was played sometime in March on NPR around here. And there was a man on there who wrote a book about how people are also feeling disenfranchised about the juridical system here in the United States. The book is about jury nullification. So they, uh, usually there's 12 people on a jury, but this guy was saying that people are in support of one individual, the judge, making that decision for people. It would be more efficient and people are um, more and more likely to be trusting of that one individual over the jury. What do you think about that, Todd? Like, What do you think about authoritarian – People who identify in the middle as authoritarianism. It's not the people who identify as Nazis. It's not people who, like Richard Spencer, who are saying, we want an authority, we want to get rid of democracy, right? Which has been like that in the past, fascism specifically being anti-democracy. But right now we're seeing people who just want to hold the United States. They consider themselves moderate. They consider them themselves that way. Why don't they want democracy? Well, I, I think there's a there's a couple of things. One, I, I mean, I think it speaks to the reason why uh, this book is so important in the sense that what Bobbio is doing at a time when it seemed critical to talk about the left-right distinction, right? Right after the fall of the Soviet Union and the apparent, quote-unquote, triumph of uh, capitalism across the world, you know, to think through yeah. um, neoliberalism well, yeah. really winning out. To to think through, um, you know, what it means to be on the left and the right. But I think it's fascinating that you know, some twenty five years or thirty years later, that the question is is even more important, right? That we have reached a point in our society where the notion of being on the left or the right 
like it somehow it seems to to tire people out. I I think that that's a, a big part of what it is is that it's just people don't want to be responsible. They they don't they don't want to make decisions. They try to pretend that they're tired of of people arguing and that they don't have to do that, right? That they don't have to participate. I mean that they're that's their individual choice, of course, right? That that they don't have to participate. So these people are still participating. I think the study is showing people who consider themselves political moderates who participate in democracy, uh-huh. but they would vote to get rid of democracy, I think is what is implied by their political leanings of these things. So it's not people, you know, the person that I work with in the kitchen who's like, yeah, I don't vote on these things. It's specifically someone who considers themselves in the middle of the political spectrum. So they are a political person. They feel that need to participate in democracy, but they don't want to have to. They would vote to abdicate their responsibility as opposed to someone who just never even cared about the responsibility to begin with. Their responsibility within a democratic system. Yes. Right. Not, okay. I don't know. I mean, you tell me, Alex. Why Why do you think people are so ready to uh, to give up? I mean, do you think that people are just overwhelmed by, like, climate change and terrorism? And I mean, is it 19 years of a war on terror? The war on drugs? I mean, it's just, it's war. It's, it's like one war after another. It's perpetual war. Yeah, I think... It's really interesting to me because specifically I see democracy as something that was won by people moving to try to create a better society like this left-right conversation that's happening all the time. And we see it coming out of uh, you know the Jacobins and the commune and things like that. They threw the, the lords out and they're saying that we want a conversation between the people of these things. But these people are actually going back to like – the Leviathan, again, that we want a king. We want a – specifically the study is showing – it shows a number of things, but something really stark is that people want one strong individual. And we can also see that from that radio lab thing that people want someone to tell them what to do, hopefully an infallible type of person. And I think that it's a disenfranchisement because of the way politics is done, people seeing things as politics. I mean, in the most recent election, going around canvassing, having conversations with people, they seem so sick and tired of these conversations, especially with feeling that there's only two options of these things. And I can't speak for everyone, but I think, yeah, I think an exhaustion and also maybe a fear of having to deal with it in any sort of way. It's almost like terrorizing like the way politics is today. And I think that's a big part of it. And I think it really weighs down upon people, but I don't think that's just it. I think that there's also something about the center as people who want a strong leader and a more authoritarian person. I think there's a large egotism involved with that whole thing that they think that there is a right way and that the left and the right don't have it, but they have the right way. And they think that they can vote in someone like Donald Trump. Yeah. You know, earlier in the book, Bobbio 
was saying that the that one of the things that the left and the right, the extreme parts of the left and right, have in common with each other is that they are against democracy. But I think that what's really interesting um, in 2019 is that it could very well be that the deepening of the contradiction between the left and the right may actually be the thing that saves democracy. That it may be the the moment where people are forced to make a choice. That they, they have to they have to choose a side and not necessarily choose a side, you know, in terms of or to choose a side in the nature of uh, the last quote, one of the last quotes that we read, where the uh, the professor was saying that liberalism and socialism, although they are adversaries, are not enemies, and to understand that the things that they're pushing for are necessary, that, that, that we need those things, instead of getting rid of them, right? Instead of going completely for equality or completely for freedom or, or liberty, that there has to be, um, and there will continue to be a balance. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's fun to think about the fact that the thing that people complain about the most, the arguing and the fighting and the opposition is actually the thing that probably makes a democracy the strongest. And without those things, what you really have is authoritarianism. You have totalitarianism. You have tyranny. Well, yeah. I mean, speaking as someone who considers myself on the left, if I give up, the right's not going to give up on this. Once again, figure nine and figure 10 of this study shows the United States. I think this is super interesting. In the United States, people who consider themselves on the far left, 85% of people consider elections as essential, even a little bit higher on the center left. And then on the far right, almost 80% of people consider elections essential. But at the center, it's just above 50% of people consider elections essential to our society. And it's very similar in the United Kingdoms as well. You know, 80% on the far left, 75% on the far right, and then the center being about 55% of people considering elections as essential to the way that their government is set up. Also thinking about this authoritarian center, going back to what I was saying, I think that there's this strange kind of schizophrenic moment that's happening under neoliberalism where people are disenfranchised in this way. And I see that being responsible for the rise of Jordan Peterson specifically. He wrote a self-help book called 12 Rules to Live By. I'm pretty sure that's the title of the book. And it has become super popular. And all he's really saying is that you should step step away from politics and that we should have strong people and strong leaders. There's a reason archetypes exist for a reason that we have, you know, King David or King Solomon. I, I don't know who he, exactly he uses, but, you know, biblical probably. But that there's a reason strong leaders are the heroes in stories because we need people like that and that we should not have to be bothered with voting like that. We shouldn't have to be 
bothered with this whole thing, that we should just keep going on in the same way. And I don't know exactly what that means, you know, in the future, but I think it's very much, yeah, some sort of weird identity crisis that's going on in 2019, probably for a little bit now. But I think maybe because of the fracturing, the I think because of things like communism considered to be a failure, you know, the end of history, like our understandings of so many things, we're having to go look back at these things and say, why didn't these things work? Or is that a failure or things like that? And I think that really speaks to this moment. Bobio is clear. The left may not like what the right says, the right may not like what the left says, but the absence of either means authoritarianism, totalitarianism, tyranny. Democracy is a dirty, loud, chaotic business. Quality and freedom demand rolling in the mud. If one side of the distinction ceases to exist, the other will take over the whole political field as the totalitarian leviathan. The two must exist in order to keep liberty and freedom for the individual and to maintain democratic decision-making. Extremism and political disagreement is the price we pay for democracy, even the limited one we have here in the United States. Our history is replete with examples of what happens when political disagreement is squashed. Native genocide, African slavery, imperial wars, Chinese slavery, Japanese internment, Jim Crow, the massive incarceration of black and brown bodies. Total agreement equals submission. There is an equality in that submission which comes at the price of our freedom. Total disagreement equals the freedom to act in whatever way we see fit. The price of total freedom is equality. Although we have spent much time tonight talking about the distinction between the left-right, it is important to make clear that the center we are talking about in this episode is a self-identified center group characterized by their want to abdicate their political responsibility by turning over political discourse to a leader. The purpose of bringing this study is to show with quantifiable research the danger of what Bobbio is talking about. As they say, the roadkill is in the middle. We'd like to thank our dysfunctionals for listening. As always, check out our website, waroftheflea.org, for more weird voices of the resistance, resources, and archives of the indigenous struggle. Also, check out Leo Morales' Detourmont Project, Slime City Disciples. If you're in Prescott, Arizona, come say hello at the Franz Fanon Community Strategy Center. I can be found eating chicken wings and yelling into the Twitter abyss at Bing Bong Victory. And Professor Ernesto Morales is somehow still rooting for the Detroit Lions at Ernesto Morales. We leave you with the wise words of KRS-One. Which side are you on? I'm Alex Yanish. I'm Ernesto Morales. And, and we, we are, are the Reality Function.